0: Every time I'm in the media I receive feedback from people and some of that feedback's positive and some of it's negative but this time around has definitely been the most negative feedback I've received extending to death threats and that kind of thing which is pretty difficult to deal with.
1: Kate Weatherly is a champion mountain biker but that's not the reason she gets death threats. It's because she is a transgender athlete.
0: I've had people tell me that they're worried that the impact that I will have will drive their, their daughters away from competing or being in sports because they see trans women coming in and taking over the sport and their daughters will never be able to achieve anything because we are taking over.
1: She's bravely stuck her neck out about this. Swimming's world governing body, FINA, has voted to restrict transgender athletes from
2: competing in elite women's races. The new policy requires transgender competitors to have completed their transition by the age of 12 in order to be able to take part in women's competitions. FINA aims to create an open category at
1: competitions for swimmers whose gender identity is different than their birth sex. Then, other sports have followed. A day after the swimming decision, World Football's governing body
2: said it was reviewing its policies around transgender athletes. World Athletics and FIFA
0: are the latest sports governing bodies, considering banning transgender women from competing in female events. Yesterday it was swimming, today it's International Rugby League. They've placed a ban on all transgender athletes until further research is completed.
1: And the debate grows and grows over whether it's right, wrong, fair. Look,
2: I haven't got a human rights, legal, or scientific background, but I believe in the great Australian expression give her a fair go. This is about
0: sport being fair for women, and that's why to me it looked like a victory common sense
1: in the end sanity prevailed reality trumped fantasy facts beat feelings and fairness triumphed over a twisted version of inclusion pushed by
0: radical trans activists
1: why is it such a, a blanket decision saying it's a no-go rather than doing it on a case-by-case basis
0: the suggestion that trans women are on the verge of taking over women's sports is is simply not true.
1: I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly, and today on The Detail, how World Swimming's decision opens a whole new can of worms. We look at the future for transgender athletes and fears about the trickle-down effect of those top-level decisions. What is the thing that people attack, you know, when you come out and say stuff, what is the thing that people get stuck into?
0: I think people are particularly concerned about the impact that me and people like me have on other women. They perceive trans women as this group of people who have an unfair advantage over other women. And by us coming into sports, we are taking career opportunities and results away from the people they perceive as real women and for a lot of people that is exacerbated by the fact that women's sports have typically struggled a lot particularly when compared to men's sports things like pay inequality has been a huge issue things like uh, tv attention and the issues we've seen in women's uh, handball and beach volleyball around the clothing that they're allowed to wear and things like that. It's it's a very hotly contested area. And I think when people see any new perceived threat to an area of the sporting world that they already feel is very much under threat, that is very worrying and scary for a lot of people, which I think is a very fair thing to be concerned about.
1: And, to be honest, you are stronger than them, aren't you? I but
0: mean, I'm not. You're
1: not. No, okay. No. Why, why aren't you?
0: I mean, I mean, like, l- l- let's say objectively, let's look at my my lifts in the gym, for example. I am really close with lots of the other girls that I race with, so I'm fairly keyed in on how much they can lift in the gym. So things like squats, deadlifts, we all do that as a part of our training routines for racing, and. I'm definitely not the strongest on the circuit by any means. I'm not the tallest. I don't have the broadest shoulders. There are girls who I race with who make me look small. And I think that I'm definitely not the average, but high-level athletes are never the average.
1: But uh, what do you say to the argument that that you had testosterone going through your body before you... Now, how am I going to say this that's not going to offend you or other people?
0: You could just say, like, prior to transitioning. Okay. Yeah, no, because I absolutely did have several years of a male puberty prior to transitioning, given it wasn't an entire male puberty uh, because I started my puberty quite late and then transitioned not long after because I started puberty and went, wow, this is horrifying. And pretty much as not long after pursued a medical transition and I think that that is a fair concern yes potentially I may have benefited from that testosterone I did have but it's hard to know those benefits that I may have uh, received through that part of my puberty then going on to then having hormone replacement therapy how many of those changes would have been reversed because there isn't a lot of data about how a transition during puberty impacts physiological performance, a lot of the data that exists in literature focuses on people who transitioned post-puberty or well after puberty. If we were to go with the assumption that I did have an unfair advantage, then you would assume that I would be winning everything by huge margins, where I'm just not.
1: What is your sport's stance on this issue?
0: So uh, mountain biking follows the UCI's regulations, which I think reasonably close to what the IOC, the international Olympic committee follow. So they've actually just updated their policy to require testosterone testing at below five nanomoles per liter of blood and to have transitioned two years prior to, uh, being able to compete in the women's field. Neither of which I think is a particularly problematic or aggressive view. And also, the fact that the old limit was at 10 nanomoles was always a bit excessive when you consider that most trans women who've had their testosterone successfully blocked will be sitting at around 0.5 nanomoles per litre of blood, which is significantly less than that. So most trans women who are a couple of years into into their transition would still meet the new UCI requirements.
1: So you're happy with that arrangement. Do you think that different codes need to look at this individually. Each case should be assessed independently.
0: I, I think so. And I think this is a conversation that's not happening enough in this area, is that this is all opinion. You're asking me what my opinion is. Everyone's going, what's your opinion? What do you think? We're talking to physiologists. We're asking them their opinions. And, but there just isn't the research on these topics. And I think that the best way to make the, the decisions in this area is just to look at the athletes and look at how they're performing and go, is the training that they're doing matching up with the results that they achieve? I think Laurel Hubbard would be a great example of that. She transitioned later in life than I did and she still gets beaten by her competitors. She's a phenomenal athlete. She does really well but she's hardly dominating the field. Mm. Going back to your question before about the impact that my part of a male puberty that I had, how that might impact my performance. Now I never had testosterone testing prior to when I transitioned. I don't know how much testosterone I had or for how long there is just so much variation within regardless of even trans people, just within cis people. Mm. We look at everyone, everyone's bodies are so different and It's just impossible to make these black and white conclusions about what is an unfair advantage and what's not an unfair advantage. I think that that's just impossible to make those conclusions. But that
1: is happening, isn't it? Yeah. And how does that make you feel?
0: I think it's frustrating. I guess what it feels like is people are governing bodies are trying to implement policies that they claim are supporting inclusion, but when they essentially ban athletes and are not coming from a place of evidence, that is pretty frustrating because I think that it, is, it sets a worrying precedent.
2: As someone who's spent the last 15 years studying women in sport, this is not the threat that we need to be worried about.
1: Waikato University professor Holly Thorpe researches and works with sporting organisations on equity and justice for women. I believe um, deeply that with creativity
2: and thinking outside the box, sports organisations can find a way to start uh, their policies from a place of inclusion, where transgender women are welcome and seen as the sportswomen that they are. Um, but I think the dialogue that we've been having is really harmful and really problematic and mm-hmm. really doesn't come at this necessarily from a kind, from an empathetic, from a compassionate place.
1: A lot of this is coming from a place of fear. When you say that transgender women are not a threat to women and sport, I suppose at top level, that is the very thing, isn't it? Because they want to win, and these organisations such as FINA, the swimming organisation, is saying that it is unfair.
0: We have to protect the rights of all our athletes to compete. But we also have to protect competitive fairness at our events, especially women's competition.
1: Yeah, I
2: can hear that argument, but what's really problematic is they're saying that the science is evidencing that there's an unfair advantage. And actually, the science does not conclusively show that at all. And a lot of people connect with this idea that if you've got a biological male that goes through puberty and transitions, they've had the advantage of testosterone on the body during those teenage years. And a lot of people go, oh, yes, that makes sense. Of course, men and women are different. And if a biological male opposes a biological female in sport, it's not giving her a fair go. But what we're not necessarily considering when we have that conversation is what happens for the transgender woman as she goes through that transition process. If that is a medical process, which is what we're talking about in elite sport, this is a very traumatic and physically and emotionally challenging experience i've heard the analogy of a big four wheel drive truck right and but actually being being powered by a hatchback engine mm once the hormones have shifted so significantly within the body that actually powering that 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 big structure is not advantageous in sport at all you know sporting advantage is such a complicated one right yeah. it's not just our bones and our structure it's some mental characteristics the wealthiness of the country we come from that can afford coaches and support staff and so when we get really bogged down on one particular hormone, it oversimplifies a much more complicated picture. When we have transgender health experts join this conversation, they recognise that all of all of that kind of transitional process is very much a disadvantage when we talk about it in the sporting context.
1: And there's been no research on transgender elite athletes. But I've just listened to the interview that uh, Jim Mora did with Dr David Gerard. He said that before FINA reached its decision, they
2: undertook an independent investigation based on the opinions of eminent scientists, international clinicians, endocrinologists. They were followed by a group of lawyers who were versed in in human rights and transgender issues. And then this was concluded by the opinions of two Olympic athletes, Summer Saunders, and then Kate Campbell.
1: So they canvassed a, a broad range of people before they came to their decision. So do you not buy into that? I think the FINA policy
2: has come very clearly um, as a knee-jerk response to Leah Thomas in the USA
1: the first known transgender swimmer to win a US National College title. Thomas will now not be eligible to compete in women's events at the World Championships or the Olympics.
2: And the consultancy process that FINA went through, people are asking to see what science was drawn upon and what experts uh, were consulted, and they are not providing that information. And certainly you could focus on sport physiology research, which would demonstrate perhaps, and I have seen it, that looks at uh, the advantages or the benefits of testosterone in male bodies. We need to bring that into
1: conversation with what actually happens to the body in the transition process. You have done an extensive investigation, I suppose, into how this issue was covered during the Tokyo Olympics and what since then Yes so I
2: was I've been working with international colleagues uh, we did a big media analysis looking at the international media coverage of Laurel Hubbard uh, before, during, and after the Tokyo Olympic Games.
0: New Zealand weightlifter will be the first transgender athlete to compete in the Olympics. Laurel Hubbard will compete in the super heavyweight 87 kilogram category, but the decision is already sparking pushback. Critics saying it's unfair to other female athletes. The New Zealand government, however, is standing behind Hubbard.
2: Uh, All around the world, there's a a real fascination with this topic. And what we saw overwhelmingly is very polarising kind of media coverage in terms of you're either on this side or this side. And that really encouraged the public into this two-sided argument where you had to take a position. And a lot of this media coverage, um, there was dead naming, there was some pretty inappropriate language usage. Often Laurel's voice was not there as the transgender athlete that everyone was talking about. Um, Quite questionable sources were brought in um, as experts to speak to the transgender experience. We saw science being used selectively as a truth. A lot of the media articles highlighted that the, the IOC and International Weightlifting Federation policies in which Laurel Hubbard had got into the Olympic Games were still under development. And this all kind of framed up Laurel as if she was kind of finding a loophole and almost like she was you know, trying to cheat the system.
1: Well, can I just say, Holly, that I was one of those people who did a podcast about Laurel and I didn't speak to her because she wasn't available to talk to. I spoke to a A journalist who had gone to school with her, and so I'm sort of guilty of the things that you've put put out there. I'm also guilty of dead naming and I'm also guilty of telling the story of Laurel from when she was a child. And I had no awareness of it. I didn't even know there was such a word as dead naming until I'd done that podcast and, and from the reaction I got. But by mm. trying to find out a little bit more about people like Laurel and what, what, it, what she's gone through, we might get things wrong along the way, but also we're increasing awareness of this issue. That's that's such an interesting point. I'm actually writing a paper on this topic right now
2: because what we did see is a, despite the majority of um, international media not doing a great job on this topic, we did see and we did interviews with uh, a small, careful selection of journalists who adopted more kind of responsible and ethical reporting on the Laurel Hubbard case and what we've heard from them is a huge amount of learning went on in that time but I just I really worry about the harm that can happen to the transgender community as they hear us all debating about their very existence in sport and ultimately in society.
1: Yeah for people who don't know what is dead naming? So,
2: dead naming is a, a journalistic practice of referring to a transgender person by the name they had before they transitioned. So, for that person who has transitioned uh, to male or female, referring to the name that they were given at birth um, is obviously um, loaded up with a lot of kind of trauma and doesn't respect uh, the process that they've, they've gone through. Yeah, there's a lot of stereotypes and um, it's often there are these kinds of ideas circulating as if the transgender woman at a sports club is going to be there prying on young girls and changing rooms. They have all these fears. Mm -hmm. Research is shown by my colleague, Dr. Jamie Veal from the University of Waikato. Their research has shown that very few transgender people participate in sport because in their childhood and their youth, sport has not been a safe
1: place for them and that's one of the things that you point out isn't it that these decisions by organizations such as FINA will have a very damaging trickle down effect
0: if you are transgender
2: how do you decide what sports teams to play on in a growing number of states that decision is made for you if you get to play at all
1: Tonight, as the debate intensifies, more than a dozen states enacting legislation limiting transgender students' participation
2: in school sports. That is the worry. I think the messaging is what can do a lot of harm. I know that Sport New Zealand will be releasing their guidelines later this year. And they've been through a very extensive um, consultative process to explore ways that they can create sporting environments that are truly inclusive. But I think the messaging coming from international sports organisations like FINA and others is really that it's a very exclusionary language and ideas and values. And I don't think that's uh, future looking. You know, if, if you if you talk to young people today, they have much more expansive ideas of gender than previous generations. They've grown up in a world where they recognise that it's more complicated than male and female. I think New Zealand has an opportunity here to demonstrate leadership, but I think it's very interesting um, to look (laughs) to our Australian um, counterparts. For example, the CEO of of the Australian Sports Commission, Karen Perkins, has spoken out very concerned about the FINA policy and the selective use of science to justify this exclusionary um, set of guidelines. And so there are sports leaders around the world um, who are saying, hold on, we're not here yet. We're not at that place. And, and what I know also is that FINA's policies aren't the done deal. They've still got to go through a whole lot of kind of arbitration processes before they actually get approved and they can start putting those into practice at the elite sport levels. It's definitely an interesting moment and I'm not sure which way it's going to go. (laughs) But I know that there are a lot of people out there fighting really hard to rethink sport towards more inclusive models. And so that gives
1: me hope. you think the future what what does it look like in terms of these kinds of decisions and trans athletes performing at that top level
0: i think that i hope that the knowledge basis around this will grow that as these conversations are had more academics will look into this and more academics who come from a place of genuinely wanting to understand these issues and not coming from any place of an existing bias.
1: Do you, do you get sick of it? I mean, do you just want to go out there, ride your bike and
0: you know, get on yeah, with your life? Absolutely. I think it's, there's only so many ways I can say the same thing over and over and over again. I think that for a lot of people, no matter what I say, they won't be able to empathize with my perspective. You know, I've had people tell me that they're worried that the impact that I will have will drive their their daughters away from competing or being in sports because they see trans women coming in and taking over the sport and their daughters will never be able to achieve anything because we are taking over. And although I think that's an unfounded concern, I can appreciate the fact that that may be really scary for a lot of people, but some people may just, Never want to listen.
1: How do you handle the death threats?
0: Not well. (laughs) It's tough. So many people, I think, just don't see the person on the other end of the comments that they make. They go, here's a person who's coming in and doing this thing that I perceive as evil and awful and selfish, and I'm going to lash out at them. And I think that the... The lack of empathy that I see from a lot of those people is pretty profoundly upsetting. I just remind myself that by doing this stuff and talking about these issues, more people will understand and that I'll be changing minds in a positive way and hopefully the people who have a more positive perspective on this stuff outweigh the people who have the negative perspectives.
1: That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. The Detail is public interest journalism funded through NZ On Air and produced by Newsroom 4RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Sarah Robson. Our associate producer is Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Kate Weatherly and Holly Thorpe. Matewa.